This is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. I hope you enjoy this program, and to sustain us, we need your help. Please go to our website, LOE.org, or call right now, 1-617-629-3638. Thank you. From Public Radio International, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. New research shows common man-made chemicals can make us fat. Our research suggests that prenatal or early life exposure to such chemicals can reprogram the metabolism so that they use calories differently. Prenatally exposed mice get fatter on an absolutely normal diet. But that early exposure may not equal destiny. Plus, the search for lost and forgotten oil wells that might still hold some nasty surprises. An abandoned well, if it's not properly plugged, provides a conduit for gases to come to the surface. These gases could be, of course, methane, natural gas, or something like radon. And the gases can make you sick or blow up your house. We'll have those stories plus another visit to the place where you live and more this week on Living on Earth. Stick around. Support for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation and Stonyfield Farm. From the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios in Somerville, Massachusetts, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. So, why are so many of us getting fat? A majority of Americans are overweight, and a third of us are medically obese. Sedentary lifestyles, easy access to calories, inadequate sleep, and our genes, they're all factors... But Bruce Blumberg of the University of California, Irvine, is among a small group of researchers who have found prenatal exposures to common chemicals could be programming us to get fat. Professor Blumberg joins us today. And, Professor, you may have coined a new term. Where did you come up with the word obesogen? Well, to be perfectly honest, when we were writing our story about the chemical that we worked on, tributyl tin, it seemed absolutely obvious to us that a chemical that makes animals fat should be called an obesogen. So, and I didn't realize that it wasn't a word. What is that chemical, by the way? Tributyl tin is a chemical that used to be used on ship hulls, and it's used as a fungicide in paints and keeps marine life and fungus from growing on various surfaces. And we found, accidentally, that tributyl tin makes animals fat. Now, this tributyl tin, this fungicide, is not the only compound that we know that uh, can make animals fat, correct? No, there's a variety of chemicals that can make animals fat. What uh, might be familiar to us? Well, one of the strongest lines of evidence that there are chemical obesogens is that there are pharmaceutical obesogens. There are drugs which make people fat. For example, um, Actos and Avandia are diabetes drugs that improve your insulin sensitivity but also make you fat. There's another uh, antipsychotic drug called olanzapine that makes people gain about 10 kilograms a year. Many kinds of antidepressants make people gain weight. And our premise is if there are drugs that make people fat, why would you expect that a chemical that targets the same pathway in a cell wouldn't have the same effect? So what are the broader implications of your discoveries? Well, the broader implications are that it isn't strictly calories in, calories out that is causing people to become fat. We already know that there are a variety of factors. But what our research and the research in other laboratories suggests that prenatal or early life exposure to obesogens can reprogram the metabolism of the individual that's exposed so that they use calories differently. Our prenatally exposed mice get fatter on an absolutely normal diet. 
Professor Bloomberg, you are finding that exposures to a pesticide are, are programming animals to be fat throughout their lives. What can you tell us about what's happening in the body that's causing this? I mean, the animals become super hungry? Okay, so as far as we know, there are no big changes in, in appetite. We've seen in our experiments more and larger fat cells, and we've seen a population of stem cells that is predisposed to make more fat cells. That's with tributyl tin. And so what's happening is that these stem cells are getting instructions from these chemicals to become fat cells, don't become bone or muscle or, or the other thing. That's the way it looks. So you're getting the direct instruction become a fat cell, but you're also getting a different kind of instruction that says, you know, this group of you are going to be more likely to form a fat cell than a bone cell. And that doesn't mean I can't override it, but in the absence of extra instructions, you're going to go down the fat pathway. So there's a two-tiered process here. One is sort of a pre-selection process, sort of nominating cells. The chemicals nominate a cell to become a fat cell. And then the chemicals can also then promote that pre-fat cell into a true fat cell. That's correct. I guess one of the most vexing aspects of this is that you're seeing these effects at levels that are below what the government considers the no effects level at the nanoscale. I mean, you really have to listen at a whisper to what's going on. Yes, so we see effects at very low levels, but as, as endocrinologists, that's not surprising at all. So the endocrine hormone systems in your body already work at very, very low levels. So the testosterone receptor and the estrogen receptor and the thyroid hormone receptor work at parts per billion levels of the hormone. So it isn't a big surprise that chemicals have an effect at the same level. That, to an endocrinologist, is just absolutely expected. To a, an industry toxicologist who's used to working at astronomical doses of a chemical, they can't wrap their minds around the fact that we're seeing effects at parts per billion. And it's a, it's a difference in training and in worldview. So how reversible are these results? I mean, once these animals have had the exposure and developed the fat cells, how, how can uh, they get rid of them? So we don't know of any way to eliminate the number of fat cells. And in fact, in humans the number of fat cells that you have as an adult is programmed pretty much by the end of puberty. So your body knows how many fat cells it's supposed to have based on your early life experiences. And your body will defend that number. And when fat cells die, it will replenish just the right number. So if you have liposuction and remove some of those adult fat cells, they'll come back. They might not come back in the same place, but your body will replenish that number of cells. Does your research mean that if we are being exposed to obesogens and if they are having an effect in humans, that in essence, these effects are irreversible, that no matter how much somebody exercises or eats right, that they'll never get to lower body weights? No, it doesn't mean that at all. What it means is that the person who's been exposed is going to have to work harder. But I would never, ever say that obesogen exposure dooms you to be fat. What it does is it dooms you to be predisposed. So it dooms you to have a metabolism that tends to store calories more effectively than to burn them. And that means you have to watch what you eat more. You have to exercise more. You have to try harder than someone who's not been exposed. Bruce Blumberg is professor of developmental and cell biology in the School of Biological Sciences at the University of California at Irvine. Thank you so much, sir. You're welcome.
The Brazilian Congress recently passed a bill that would reduce protection of forests in the Amazon. So activists appealed to President Dilma Rousseff. Now you had everybody from the Brazilian Academy of Sciences to literally the Brazilian equivalent of Bugs Bunny saying, veto this bill, we're against more deforestation in the Amazon, and this bill is going to cause that. Steve Schwartzman is director of tropical forest policy for the Environmental Defense Fund. Environmental groups, scientists, and a groundswell of the Brazilian public all called for the president to veto the entire bill. In the end, she struck down 12 individual clauses of the new code with a line-item veto. The most controversial clause would have given amnesty to all landowners that illegally deforested before 2008. President Dilma modified the bill to give only that amnesty to small landowners. But Steve Schwartzman says if any illegally deforested areas are still being used for agriculture, they wouldn't have to be reforested. The best analyses that I've seen are suggesting that upwards of 90 percent of those illegally deforested lands from before 2008 are really not going to be required to do anything. Also at issue, the green corridors along the many rivers of the Amazon basin that are crucial for species to travel between pockets of rainforest surrounded by soy and cattle. Congress called for just 30 feet of forest land near rivers, but President Dilma increased that to more than 300 feet. Now all of the president's changes will go back to Brazil's Congress, giving the legislators the chance to accept or override the line-item vetoes. Observers say not much is likely to happen with the forest code legislation until after the more than 50,000 representatives of government, non-governmental organizations, and others gather in Brazil late in June for the Rio Plus 20 Earth Summit. Well, in advance of the upcoming Rio Plus 20 conference, William Muma has published an article in the journal Climate Policy that outlines a different approach to the challenge of climate change. He's a professor of environmental international relations at Tufts University and a lead author of several climate science chapters for reports from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. He says an alternative approach is necessary in a world that has plenty of economic problems and different national interests. Professor Muma, thanks for coming into the studio. Thank you. It's been 20 years since people gathered in Rio, uh, said we should have a climate change treaty. We got a treaty. The U.S. ratified it. And nothing has really happened since Rio. What went wrong? What should we have been doing all this time in terms of negotiating a climate treaty? Well, the treaty as it's designed is really a pollution control treaty. And that leads negotiators to talk about burden sharing. Now, think about this for a moment. If I'm a negotiator and I go to a meeting on doing something about climate change and I come home and say to my government and my people, I have brought a burden to share with you, that is not exactly a formula for success. No. And in fact, the emissions are the result of the choices that we've made to build our economies by burning fossil fuels. So what we really have is a development problem. And what we need is a development treaty to address it. So what should we do instead in terms of developing a development treaty, as you say? Well, I think what we really need to do is shift the focus away from where the commas go and, uh, and who should do what and blaming other countries for the emissions and recognize that we are arguing a false dichotomy. We are saying that somehow uh, more carbon dioxide emissions from burning more fossil fuels equals more economic well-being. In this paper, we quote five world leaders, and they all say things like, we can't do more because it will cut our development potential. It would cost our jobs and damage our industry. Now, those comments come from 
people from developed countries and developing countries. Our own George Bush I, who was at Rio 20 years ago, basically said, our lifestyle is not up for negotiation. So basically, everybody is seeing more emissions as tied to more economic growth. And that's not really true. Most of Western Europe produces as much GDP per person as we do. They do it with half the emissions that we do. How would you frame this as an opportunity for all countries instead of a burden to be avoided? How would it be an opportunity? The opportunity to make something new, to develop whole new industries, would transform the economies of the world into something that is far more productive. And if we actually set as a goal, as this paper suggests, uh, the provision of clean energy services for all, that's a huge market. It's an enormous market. That would probably keep our economies running for the next 50 years. That would get us over the climate problem, and I think it would also get us over our economic problem. What's the role of big international agreements in dealing with climate change, in your view? Well, if we look at what the current treaty did was it got us on track. It basically said the governments of the world agree this is a huge problem. We should address it. So it's, it's motivational. It's inspirational, perhaps. But it's not going to get the job done. Uh, the job is going to be done at a much more local and regional level. It's not going to be done by dictates from on top. So things like the RED, which is uh, reducing emissions from degradation and deforestation, finding a way to get money in the hands of people to keep them from chopping down trees in the tropics, those kind of elements are what you're talking yes, about. Yes, those, and, and those may come in a treaty, but they don't need to be coming in a treaty. If you look at it right now, there's a huge amount of money coming from uh, the Prince of Wales and his foundation, money coming from Norway, not through the treaty but separate from the treaty. And each of those is in the billions of dollars range. You know, it's big. We have the World Bank putting uh, 7 or $8 billion a year into various kinds of climate-focused development agreements. This system did not exist until fairly recently. And so we keep thinking in terms of this traditional diplomacy when, in fact, we're into a new diplomacy which goes beyond just the role of national governments. The Rio Plus 20 Summit... Yes. At the end of June, what's your best hope for what might happen there? I guess my best hope actually rests with the side events and not with the governmental portion of the meeting. That is, there will be a lot of really good ideas that will come out of that. Uh, the governments will meet for their three days. They will try to paper over the failure to get a climate treaty, among other things. And they will try to talk about some new, new way of looking at things that will make what we haven't accomplished not look so bad. There will be some governments that will be out there pushing hard. At the Durban climate meeting, for the first time, African countries lined up with small island states and basically said, we're not buying this argument that we have to wait around until the big polluters go first. We really need to see action soon. And so I expect that the blocking countries, the United States, China, India, they're trying to uh, undermine progress on this, uh, some of the oil-producing countries, will find themselves in a minority there. William Muma is professor of international environmental policy at the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy at Tufts University. Thank you so much for coming in, Professor. Thank you very much for having me.
Just ahead, searching for lost wells and lost moose. Keep listening to Living on Earth. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. For more than 150 years, prospectors in the United States have drilled countless holes in the ground in search of oil and gas. Most of the resulting wells were sealed once they became unprofitable. But improperly sealed ones can lead to explosions and other hazards. With a gas rush now underway in the Marcellus Shale in the eastern U.S., the Federal Department of Energy has made the search for so-called orphaned wells a high priority. From the radio show The Allegheny Front, Kate Malangowski has our story. At the Washington County Airport, a peculiar-looking helicopter is landing. It has two long poles branching out beneath each side, kind of like wings. After the propellers stop, Shane Sudden hops out of the helicopter and removes his helmet. As an operator, it's his job to make sure the data is being taken properly as he checks a screen from the cockpit. I went good, no wind, smooth, no birds, no other planes. Sudden is with Fugro Airborne Surveys, an international surveying group hired by the Department of Energy to look for abandoned wells in this part of Pennsylvania. The team will survey a portion of Washington County where Marcellus shell drilling is expected to surge. He says the survey area is not very big. It's 290 kilometers in total lines, like length, so I think it's maybe three or four square miles. It's a lot of you just go in and then your tight turns and then fly right back and then another tight turn and fly back. The helicopter has special equipment mounted on long, white poles on either side. At the end of each pole is a white cylinder pointed at the ground. Inside, these canisters are essentially advanced metal detectors. They can pick up cars, natural metals like gold, or the metal casings found in abandoned oil and gas wells. Whenever the detector senses something magnetic, the data will be shown on a screen that Sedden is checking on during the flight. I'm just looking at the raw data of what I see, and if there's an anomaly down there, it'll spike. The Department of Energy has used this type of technology out west and is now piloting the flyovers in Pennsylvania. Rick Hammock is a scientist with the National Energy Technology Lab, and he's in charge of the flyover project. An abandoned well, if it's not properly plugged, provides a conduit for gases to come to the surface. These gases could be, of course, methane, natural gas, or, or something like radon. If wells aren't known, if you build a house over top of a well that's not sealed, the well itself can provide a conduit for a radon to come up and invade the basement or or natural gas. The first natural gas well in Pennsylvania was drilled in 1859, but the industry wasn't regulated until 1956. That left almost a century's worth of wells drilled with little or no records of where they were located. It's estimated there are more than 100,000 of these so-called orphan wells sitting in Pennsylvania. Left untreated, Hammock says houses built on top of these wells can become explosive. Certainly Pennsylvania has a long experience with uh, houses that have exploded because of uh, gases that have accumulated in people's basements and, and have ignited. We're also learning brand new information this morning as crews work to find out what caused an explosion at this house in West Mifflin. The explosion happened in the basement of this home along Blueberry Drive and caused the ceiling... This explosion that WTAU-TV reported last year was actually caused by methane from an abandoned well. Fortunately, no one was home during this event, but others haven't been so lucky. Fred Baldessari is a former DEP geologist who specialized in abandoned wells. 
He's now a consultant who works on stray methane issues. On his laptop, he carries a PowerPoint about some of the most serious abandoned well events he's worked on. That used to be a two-story house, and it got in through the water well, got into the house, and accumulated. The resulting explosion was three fatalities. Everybody in the home was killed. Baldessari says that with the Marcellus boom, drillers are more vigilant than ever about finding out where these wells are. It's in their best interest, and oftentimes... Uh, They have farm line maps, which are old maps that are handed down through the different oil and gas companies that are maybe a little bit better than what the state has. But the state is keeping tabs on abandoned wells. Among those doing this is Kristen Carter of the Pennsylvania Geological Survey. At her Pittsburgh office, she leans over a table and points at a map. This is the heart of of what is the uh, Washington Taylorstown field. It's a very um, historic large producing oil field that was developed in the early to mid 20th century. There are a lot of well permits here that start with the number nine. Meaning any well on the map that begins with nine are orphan wells. There are dozens of dots like this on the map. One problem with looking for wells, Carter says, is a lot of the metal casings used to detect these wells are gone. Anecdotally, we know that people removed as much steel as they could from the ground because they were using it for other things, the war effort and and whatnot. With the influx of drillers in the Marcellus Shale, there's even more of a need to locate these wells, hence the helicopter. Again, Rick Hammack of the National Energy Technology Lab. Chances are in, in years to come, there will be Marcellus development in these areas, but we will already have flown and we will know where the wells are by the time development reaches these areas. Once they're finished surveying, The data will be synced with video recordings taken from the helicopter, and results of this testing will be available after a three-month analysis. Meanwhile, back at the Washington County Airport, Seddon returns to the helicopter for another flight. It's time to zigzag across the county again, looking for more orphan wells. I'm Kate Malangowski. Our story on orphan wells comes to us from the radio show The Allegheny Front. An average moose stands five to seven feet high and weighs almost a ton. Moose have a very large presence in some of the northern reaches of the United States, and populations are increasing in parts of the Northeast. But recently, wildlife biologists in the upper Midwest have noticed a severe drop in that region's moose population. Joining me from Grand Portage, Minnesota, is Seth Moore. He's the director of biology and environment for the Grand Portage Band of Chippewa in Minnesota. We've been seeing a long-term population decline since 1990. We're seeing lower numbers of bulls compared to cows. We're seeing fewer calves on on the landscape. So we're trying to determine what the causes are for the population decline. We're concerned that moose are going in the same direction as the polar bear populations in the Arctic, and we hope that we can be effective before the population has declined too far. So what type of decline are we talking about here? What kind of numbers? It's, it's pretty significant. So over the long-term trend from 1990 to present, it looks like about 65% of the population has declined. But the scariest thing is in the most recent survey, the one from this year, we showed survey numbers down more than 50%. So as a biologist, I have two independent pieces of information that indicate 
a significant drop in our local moose herd. And so I really need to take this seriously. Now, you work for the uh, Grand Portage Band of Chippewa. Why is the moose population so important to where you are? Moose are the primary subsistence species to the Grand Portage Band. And so, as such, they really define the culture of the band. If we lose the moose population here, we're losing part of the identity of the Grand Portage Band of Chippewa. And so, for this reason, we are working as hard as we can on this moose population issues issue, and it is one of the highest priorities of the Grand Portage Fish and Wildlife Biology Department. So let's talk about weather and climate. Uh, the U.S. had a very mild uh, winter overall. Here in the east, we barely had to lift a snow shovel. What was it like there in the far northern uh, Midwest? This last winter, we actually call this a non-winter. We had lowest snow that we've seen in a long time. We didn't really have any cold temperatures. And, you know, one of the things about moose is that they're adapted to a cold climate. So in winter, moose tend to exhibit heat stress at 20 degrees Fahrenheit. Well, most of our winter was above 20 degrees Fahrenheit. So these animals are stressed out for the entire winter. We've also found here in Grand Portage, our moose populations are correlated with late winter snow depth. So Deeper late winter snows means more moose on the landscape. And our Grand Portage weather data has indicated that since 1950, February and March average snow depth has declined by more than 50%. And in addition to that, our August maximum temperature has increased by about 5 degrees Fahrenheit over that same time span. So let's talk about the different hypotheses that you have for what's happening to the moose population. Heat is obviously one, or rather the lack of cold. And how would that... uh upset those animals? When moose exhibit heat stress, they actually start panting and bed down and really don't feed at the rate that they need to to produce calories to make their calves or make milk or even to sustain their own body during the winter months. So heat stress itself is one issue. There are three separate parasite issues that also affect moose that are related to climate change, one of which is when the snow melts early in the winter, ticks tend to survive, whereas when we have deeper snow in late winter, ticks tend not to survive. Winter ticks parasitize moose and cause moose to scrape their hair off during the winter. Sometimes tick loads can exceed 70,000 ticks on a given animal. And when this occurs, the moose is basically replacing its full blood volume in a matter of of a couple of months. The other two parasites that affect moose significantly are brainworm and liver flukes. Both of these are passed by deer, and our deer numbers are high because our winters are less severe. Winter is the population control for deer numbers in this area. In nature, uh, and I think Isle Royale, which is just offshore from where you are, is a classic case of this, moose are held in check or held in balance with wolves. Yep. What's happening there in Grand Portage with this, these wild fluctuations in the weather? The thing with wolf populations on the mainland versus Isle Royale is our wolf populations are correlated significantly with our deer populations. So when deer numbers are high, wolf numbers are also high. And so even if wolves are mostly eating deer during their diet, when wolf numbers are high, they're encountering moose more often, and so we're probably getting a little bit of increased predation by wolves as well, just because deer numbers are high. What's happening with the habitat there that might be affecting the moose? The habitat is changing, and I think the habitat is changing partly because of the historic wildfire regime has changed and some of the historic logging practices have changed. Both wildfire and logging create new forage for moose that they need, 
wildfire was a historic ecological mechanism that has happened, logging has replaced that. When wildfire sweeps through an area, it creates new forests. And in addition to that, it also reduces the tick numbers that affect the moose as well during the late winter. What interventions are you considering that uh, could be implemented? We're doing a couple of different things. We can reduce some of our wildfire suppression. This will help control tick numbers and also help to produce young forest. And the other thing that we can do as natural resource managers is we can aggressively manage our deer herd to stabilize their population growth. Seth Moore is Director of Biology and Environment for the Grand Portage Band of the Chippewa in Minnesota. Thank you, sir. Thank you. It was great to be here. This week, we have another installment of the Living on Earth Orion Magazine occasional series, The Place Where You Live. Home, home on the range. As the song says, it's where the deer and the antelope play. And while most of us don't live on the prairie, it holds a special place in the hearts and minds of Americans. My name is Linda Hazelstrom, and I'm from Hermosa, South Dakota. Home to me is the prairie. I've lived a number of other places, and I'm really grateful for having lived in town because it gave me a better perspective on what I value and on why people in town don't necessarily understand why the prairie is worthwhile. But the prairie is home to me because of the wildlife, because there's always something new to see. There's always a sunrise. There's always a sunset. There's always weather. There's always animals doing things that give me hope, particularly if I'm fool enough to read the newspaper headlines. On a late afternoon, we sit on the deck looking over one of our ranch pastures. With a flash of white, a pronghorn doe unfolds from the grass and stands, her creamy belly contrasting her black chest chevrons. Then an antelope calf leaps up, another, a third. One begins to nurse, while two hurtle around the hill, butting, kicking. Their legs are so long beneath their tiny bodies They look like daddy long legs. Eventually, all three nurse the doe, jostling. As dusk falls, the doe and her babies slowly fade from sight. We know the calves lie hidden under grass clumps. Only after a mild winter will a pronghorn doe have three calves, a reminder that everything I've observed in 60 years of living on this short grass prairie is a tiny fragment of all there is to see and know. How can I explain my love of the prairie? How can I pass my knowledge on? This love arises from the taut line of a running antelope's back, from the lush promise of the red-top grass that sustains her. She perpetuates the prairie by living here. So do I. A few days later, a hailstorm with icy stones as large as hen's eggs pounds the garden and hayfields into coleslaw, 
two flocks of ducklings on the pond below the house vanish completely. At dusk on the hillside, we see one antelope doe, one calf. Did the others die in the storm? We never see them again. Author Linda Hazelstrom lives in Hermosa, South Dakota. She writes about ranching and the environment and hosts writing retreats. Tell us about the place where you live. To find out about the Living on Earth, Orion Magazine series, and how to post your essay, go to our website, LOE.org. Be sure to check out our website for a new feature we call Living on Earth Now with regular updates and new stories. We've just posted the tale of the 18th century observers who trekked to the four corners of the world to watch Venus pass between the sun and the earth. One intrepid French astronomer who went to India was particularly unlucky. The night before the 1769 transit, beautiful sky. The morning, the entire sky was covered with clouds, and he missed it again. There's another rare transit of Venus on June 5th. Hear all about it at LOE.org. Coming up, remembering an overlooked environmental leader of a century ago. Stay tuned to Living on Earth. Support for Living on Earth comes from the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, supporting strategic communications and collaboration in solving the world's most pressing environmental problems. The Gordon and Betty Moore Foundation and Gilman Ordway for coverage of conservation and environmental change. This is Living on Earth on PRI, Public Radio International. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. The natural world is woven together like a beautiful tapestry. But the beauty of the individual threads can be debatable and is very much in the eye of the beholder. Reporter Ari Daniel Shapiro has a story about a plant that would certainly catch your eye and probably your nose as well. Just inside this tropical greenhouse at the University of Utah is a potted plant. This is it. Gregory Whaler traveled over 10,000 miles to bring it back from Madagascar. He really wanted that thing, but you'd never suspect it was worth all the trouble he had to go through. It looks kind of ordinary. Two dull brown buds snake upwards out of the dry, rocky soil in the pot. But Whalert had his reasons. To understand his thinking, we have to rewind the clock. Whalert's a botanist, and in 2006 he was collecting tree violets in Madagascar. A few miles off the northwest coast sits a tiny island called Nosyankarea. This small island is a block of basalt lava that has just risen up out of the Indian Ocean. Whalert wanted to look for violets there, but he couldn't just show up with his shovel in a plant press. The island is sacred. For maybe centuries, the Sokolov ethnic group had buried their rulers, their kings, if you like, on this island. And so before we could go collecting, we had to ask permission from the village elders. Ultimately, he got it. Whalert packed up his supplies and camping gear and hired a local boat to take him over. Up on top, the soil is extremely rocky and it's very hot, bone dry. And yet he found his tree violets. But that's not all. But also found this other plant in full bloom growing all over the place. Spectacular, charismatic plants. And what makes a plant charismatic? A beautiful flower, uh, maybe some sort of scent. And this plant had both. Sitting atop each plant's four-foot-tall, tan and purple stalk was a short stack of dozens of tiny black and yellow flowers, which were tucked inside a purple polka-dotted leafy sheath. 
And then bursting out of those flower stacks, a pale green, foot-long, suggestive-looking, well, maybe it's best to trot out the genus name here, Amorphophallus. Kind of an X-rated botanical name. It means uh, misshapen phallus. And that's exactly what it looks like. The very top of this phallic part of the plant looks as if it started to melt and then re-solidified. And it reeks. Kind of smells like cheesy, rotting cheese. But when you get your nose down in there, it smells like uh, a cross between feces and carrion. It's really an awful smell. So in this case, the smell may not be exactly charismatic to us. But to insects, it's pure bliss. They trick the insects into thinking they're landing on a dead carcass. So the insects crawl around on the flowers, and then they're tricked again to another flower. And in this way, these plants can cross-pollinate. So anyway, back to the sacred island. Wailert saw numerous patches of these plants in full bloom. And then his first night on the island, he fell ill with malaria that he'd gotten earlier in his trip. I had spent so much money and so much effort to get to these islands, I was going to at least do something. And so I staggered around and did a little bit of collecting. Finally, he had to get off the island to receive treatment. But he brought one sample with him. After returning to the United States, he showed it to the world's expert on this genus of plants. And he instantly recognized it as a new species. That fired Whalert up to go back the next year to collect more samples to describe this new species for science. He cut and dried several of the flowering stalks. Those stalks grow out of large 40 to 50 pound underground tubers, so he dug up about a dozen of those as well to distribute to various greenhouses and herbaria, including the one at the University of Utah. It was at a different phase of its life cycle when I was there, so I didn't see the plant in all its smelly and lurid glory. What have you decided to name this one? We are going to name it after a famous French botanist, and his name was Perrier, so Amorphophallus perrieri. It turned out that Perrier had already brought a specimen of this plant back to Paris in the 1930s. He just never got around to naming it. Wailert found the plant when he visited the herbarium in Paris. That's why he decided to name it after Perrier. The fact that it took almost 80 years for someone to discover that someone had already discovered this plant shows just how much inventory there is in the tropics to classify and how few people there are who are actually doing the classifying. It should be noted that the main reason this plant was still discoverable in this millennium was that the island of Nosiancorea is sacred and undisturbed. But with cattle grazing and other development, that's not the case for most of this region. The surrounding islands are almost completely cut down, burned down. What little left is going fast. There's huge places in the tropics that are being destroyed quicker than the plants and animals can be described. And so Gregory Wailert is on an urgent mission to find as many plants as he can and to document, collect, classify, and protect them. For Living on Earth, I'm Ari Daniel Shapiro. Ari's story on Amorphophallus perrieri is part of the series One Species at a Time, produced by Atlantic Public Media with support from the Encyclopedia of Life. To see photos of the smelly plants, check out our website, LOE.org. John Muir and Teddy Roosevelt usually get much of the credit for launching the American conservation movement. But one important early champion has been largely forgotten, and that's William Temple Hornaday. 
It may be because he wasn't all that likable. Some say William Hornaday could be a stubborn, difficult, and callous man. But he did become one of America's most important and unlikely environmental leaders. He established the National Zoo in Washington, was director of the Bronx Zoo in New York City, and almost single-handedly saved the American bison from extinction. Journalist Stephen Bechtel tells the story in a new book, Mr. Hornaday's War, how a peculiar Victorian zookeeper waged a lonely crusade for wildlife that changed the world. Welcome to Living on Earth, Stephen Bechtel. Thanks for having me. So William Temple Hornaday changed the world. How? Well, he was probably one of the first eco-activists long before there was such a term. Um, he was a lover of wild places and wild things who recognized the uh, terribly dire straits that uh, the natural world was in in the late 19th century, long before anyone else did. But where did he come from? He was born on a farm in the Midwest. Everybody was born on a farm in those days and um, became chief taxidermist at the U.S. National Museum. Then he became a rifleman and, and specimen hunter for a place called Ward's Natural Science Establishment, which is sort of a Sears Roebuck catalog of um, natural history specimens for museums. He traveled the world to the, some of the world's most remote places, Borneo, the Malay Peninsula, and began to realize, although he loved to hunt, that in places uh, that were near human habitation, even in places as wild as Borneo, they were beginning to be shot out. What is it, Stefan Bechtel, that, that brought you to this story of William Temple Hornaday? I'd written a couple of books for National Geographic, and I was researching a book about the National Zoo, and I pretty quickly came across this fabulous, fascinating character who reminded me of my own grandfather. Um, my granddad was also a 19th century man, born in 1889, was somebody who just came alive in the woods, loved to hunt, and one day we happened to spot a big owl up in a tree. I think it was a great horned owl. And he took a shot at it. I couldn't for the life of me understand why you would see something beautiful and then shoot it. Well, this is part of these 19th century attitudes towards the natural world that William Temple Hornaday uh, had to contend with. People grew up closer to nature, but they also had these ideas that varmints, you know, hawks, owls, crows, snapping turtles, woodchucks should be killed. And, you know, going back and, and looking at this, this historical research, it wasn't like so much dusty piles of paper. I remembered this. I had some, some avenue to understanding this. Here's a guy who is a taxidermist. He stuffs animals, and then he goes out and he shoots them for his collection. What is it that causes him to take this turn to say, oh, we're going to lose all this if we keep killing him? It's a great question. And you know, at the center of his life are the, all of these grinding contradictions. You know, he was a hunter, a rifleman, and the last half of his life he became the noisiest and most relentless conservationist in the country. And kind of the turning point was this trip to the West in 1886 when he witnessed for the first time this fantastic massacre of buffalo that was taking place in the West. It was like uh, the second civil war out there. You know, as far as the eye could see, these buffalo carcasses. And he conducted a census to see how many of these animals were remaining alive on the planet and came up with a number something on the order of a 1,000, when 20 years earlier there had been, there's thought to have been 15 million. So he came back from the West, and he was absolutely galvanized. 
and wrote this angry book called The Extermination of the American Bison, started this organization called the American Bison Society with himself as president and Teddy Roosevelt, who seems to have been everywhere, was the honorary president. And back in those days, Teddy Roosevelt would have been what, an up-and-coming young uh, Paul in New York City? He was, and um, they first met, actually, when Hornaday was uh, preparing this six-figure bison group for the National Museum. And one day, this hale young man just comes walking into the exhibit that was incompleted and off-limits to the public. And this young man just immediately was very knowledgeable about the bison, wanted to know, you know where he had been to get them, what weapons he'd used. And finally, Hornaday said to him, you know, by the way, who are you? And he said, oh, Theodore, Theodore Roosevelt. And Roosevelt was 28 years old at the time and had just run for office, run for the mayor of New York City, and had been defeated. But they immediately had this bond and talked for an hour. And I just think it was a meeting of kindred spirits. And these two men recognized that the natural world in the North American continent was in deadly peril. And and it was going to take a huge war and a fight to make any progress with it. And the two of them both devoted much of the rest of their lives to preserving what we had. And, uh, and oh, by the way, um, Teddy Roosevelt had issues about um, ethnic diversity, should we say? Um, yes. Famously in his book, uh, The Winning of the West, he says it won't be won until we're rid of the red, yellow, black, and brown man. To what extent did his buddy William Temple Hornaday share those views, do you think? Well, there was one unfortunate incident that stained uh, William Temple Hornaday's reputation for his life, and that was the display of a Congolese pygmy in a cage at the Bronx Zoo in 1906. And I've been interested in writing this book and talking to people about it, that almost nobody's heard of, of Hornaday, but a lot of people have heard about the black man in the cage at the Bronx Zoo. Indeed. And, you know, long story short, it, there was a... a Congolese pygmy who had been brought to the United States for the 1904 World's Fair and eventually wound up at the Bronx Zoo and Dr. Hornaday allowed him to wander the grounds in a kind of a bark loincloth and sometimes accompanied by this orangutan called Dohong, the presiding genius of the monkey house. And then step by step, there was a cage that was open and then they hung a, a hammock in there and sometimes he slept there. And then one day the door was closed and there was a sign up you know, about Otabenga, you know, Congolese pygmy, he's such and such a height and weight and captured in the Congo Free State and so on and so forth. Huge hue and cry, and the exhibit was shut down in 18 days. But Hornaday himself never apologized, never recognized how offensive this was. I wrote at one time, when the history of the zoo is written, this will be considered one of its most amusing incidents. This is a very imperfect man. But if you go back in our history, there's plenty of our forefathers who were imperfect. So now, if we were to quickly line up uh, a list of William Temple Hornaday's accomplishments, what would they be? You'd have to say that he was a, probably was the key person in saving the bison from extinction. That's pretty good. Yeah. He's also often credited with saving the Alaskan fur seal from extinction. He was the director of the Bronx Zoo for 30 years and built it into one of the great institutions in the world. He was the founder and first director of the National Zoo in Washington, author of about 20 books about wildlife conservation and his great adventures. 
And he was a behind-the-scenes uh, mover and shaker and pushing forward legislation to uh, preserve wild things. And you could say he really was the godfather of the Endangered Species Act, which didn't pass until 1973. But that whole movement really began with William Temple Hornaday's horror at seeing what was happening in the West in 1886. Since he was so seminal to the conservation movement and, and everything, it's a bit puzzling as to why he's so little discussed. I, I mean, I never heard of the dude until I came across your book. I know, I know. That's, that's the most remarkable thing. It's possible that the Otabenga incident was repellent enough that that you know, expunged him from history. Putting a pygmy in a, in a cage for public uh, display. You know, it's pretty hard to get around that. But, but also it's been argued by other, you know, historians of conservation that he made so many enemies, including among his friends, that when he, he passed along, the people that should have carried along his legacy declined to do so. Nevertheless, looking back at his life through the lens of all this time that's gone by, he was an, an enormous uh, environmental hero, as you say. Stefan Bechtel's book is entitled Mr. Hornaday's War, How a Peculiar Victorian Zookeeper Waged a Lonely Crusade for Wildlife That Changed the World. Thank you so much, Stefan. Thanks, Steve. On the next Living on Earth... The invasive oriental bittersweet vine is choking trees and native plants. So one forester decided to get competitive about killing it. This one guy who's an arborist emailed me and said, I have been training my entire life for this competition. <laughs> and then somebody else emailed me and said, I'm quitting my job and going vine hunting. The Bittersweet Challenge, next time on Living on Earth. We leave you this week with an insect that's a great copycat. The greater anglewing looks just like a leaf. It's not only green, but also has an intricate pattern of veins on its wings, and it perches atop trees and tall bushes. Lang Elliott and Will Hirschberger recorded the sounds of these two male anglewings. It's on their CD, The Songs of Insects. Living on Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation. Our crew includes Bobby Bascom, Eileen Belinsky, Bruce Gellerman, Jessica Elise Kern, Ingrid Lobet, and Helen Palmer, with help from Megan Miner, Gabriella Romano, and Sammy Souza. Jeff Turton is our technical director. Allison Learish-Dean composed our themes. You can find us anytime at LOE.org, and don't forget our Facebook page. It's PRI's Living on Earth. And you can follow us on Twitter, at Living on Earth. That's just one word. I'm Steve Kerwood. Thanks for listening. Funding for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation, supporting coverage of emerging science. And Stonyfield Farm, organic yogurt and smoothies. Stonyfield invites you to just eat organic for a day. Details at justeatorganic.com. Support also comes from you, our listeners, the Go Forward Fund, and Pax World Mutual and Exchange Traded Funds, integrating environmental, social, and governance factors into investment analysis and decision-making. On the web at PaxWorld.com. PaxWorld for tomorrow. PRI. -E
Public Radio International.